Welcome to a special edition of the Truth for the Matters podcast. I am your host, Jonathan, and I'm here with my special guest. But before we introduce him inappropriately, I would like to give an appropriate applause to all of our consistent and new listeners. We thank you all in advance for continuing to press play at your own convenience. Now, this is your first time listening to the Truth of the Matters podcast. You know, it's all about providing an honest, contextual, historized, and philosophical and psychological view of the Bible through the use of hermeneutics and personal experiences with myself and Daniel. We like to think that it's important that in applying God's word to everyday life, this is something that needs to continuously be inspired and motivated to do. Now today, I wouldn't say the conversation is going to be based on testimony, but I have this gentleman who actually reached out to me and I thought it would be a good conversation to have. And the philosophy in me believes that there's always room for dialogue. Even though we might not agree, I believe we can still have a great conversation respectfully. And I thought it'd be good to bring him on. So Matthew, and how do you pronounce your last name, sir? Garnier, just like Garnier Fructis. So Matthew Gardner, how you doing this morning, sir? I'm doing great, man. I'm still in still in that uh, post writing afterglow sort of where I where I feel like I'm ready to talk about a lot of things and uh, just trying to carry the momentum from that. So appreciate you having me on, man. Yes. So before we get into the reason why you're on, I think it's important that we represent you correctly and provide some information for those that are wondering who you are, and then obviously we'll let you fill in the rest of the blank. So Matthew Garnet recently published a book about religious upbringing. The book is called Sweep Up Lessons from the End Times with Tales and Lessons from Church and Home, you know, Homeschooling. From what I'm understanding, you're a low-budget filmmaker. And growing up in the 90s, you came to this conclusion that you felt uncomfortable with some ideology and you also struggled with some mental health. So, you know, talk to us a little bit about that a little bit. Yeah, it, well, it took quite a while to become, I, I guess I was always uncomfortable with it. But um, just to be clear, you know, I, I definitely ate up the, uh, the ideologies that were um, sort of fed to me in church. And I, don't, I don't mean to make that sound like it was necessarily force fed, but I was very much surrounded with um, the religious views, you know, within my, my church circle. And that was my predominant circle because I was homeschooled. So, you know, sort of contained within that general sphere of church friends who are also homeschooled and deliberately sort of sheltered from what would be considered the outside world, not in an extreme cultish sort of way. You know, there's definitely people who are cut off to an unhealthy degree. But in my case, it was just, you know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't really looking beyond that. I wasn't questioning anything that adults said. It, to me, it was just, you have to take that as truth, whether you like it or not. And there were definitely a lot of things in the Bible, in the theology that was told to me that may not have been exactly biblical, that, that did not rub me the right way. Um, mm. But I, I went through a, a lifelong journey of uh, trying to figure out what elements of it I actually believed. And it is, I mean, who am I is very much still an evolving question. Um, 
and yeah so before you know, we yeah before we dive in a little bit more so i don't know are you open to us praying the beginning and praying uh for the absolutely outlet? man i'm i'm, I'm totally okay, comfortable so, with that okay so we'll pray and then we'll dive into the conversation so this is you know just basic conversations you know sort of understanding your reasoning for coming on and seeing if we could at the end come to some sort of consensus on things we agree with or things we aren't so sure we agree with and maybe bring up some questions that people have in regards to christianity as a whole all right so heavenly father lord in the name of jesus first and foremost we want to thank you so much for this opportunity to have dialogues such as this lord you know it's important that we have conversations like this because you told us in our in your word in matthew well not matthew romans rather that let your word be true and every word from the man from man be a lie so lord we know that anytime two or three are gathered there you are in the midst so we thank you so much for being present here we invite you into this conversation lord we know that you're a god who is not a god of confusion instead you're a god who wants us to know how truthful you are and we have your word for that so lord as we have this conversation today you know we pray for understanding right in all thy getting you told us in the book of proverbs we should get understanding so lord is also about being sensitive and open to the idea of having dialogue with people that we don't necessarily agree with or we disagree on certain points but the ultimate goal is to have those conversations to see where we can sharpen up on some of our things and as you told us through the apostle peter that all faith should be tested by fire so lord i, I pray that after this conversation those who are listening and those who are previewed to this discussion that they bring something positive out of it whether that is to go back to the drawing board and reflect over how important their walk is with you, whether they're questioning the, the legitimacy of where they are in their walk with you, or whether in fact they're actually walking with you at all. Lord, I want this conversation to be intentional and I want it to bring about things that are concerning because you said cast all anxieties upon you, all concerns, right? For you know that number of, of hairs on our head so you're much more in touch than we like to believe and i hope that after this conversation that eyes will be open and understanding at least on a closer spirit to you would be provided lord we say these things in jesus name we pray amen all right so let's see where we can get a good starting point so obviously yesterday was good friday so mm -hmm. as a person that has gone to church what is your understanding of the Passover or, or Good Friday? Well, you know, it's funny, like growing up, the, um, of course, we celebrated the religious holidays. And, uh, and when I say religious, I mean that in a broad sense, you know, I understand we can delineate, but, um, but I always kind of found it funny, you know, the extent to which we, you know, focused on the corresponding stories, even though obviously that is in a sense what it's about. I was like, does everyone else not? think about it the rest of the year and they're just like really locking in on it now because to me like the, the the concepts of like jesus death and resurrection and birth it's like i'm always thinking about all that stuff i don't just turn it on when it's time to turn it on so uh but you know now i guess that that does come back sort of in a different way where i i'm like wow this is the day that i would be specifically you know, observing that and trying to sort of conjure a greater reverence. Um, and the, I mean, the significance of 
the the story or event to whatever extent you know it was true um is still it's you know it's top of mind like people are i live in the bible belt you know everybody's like happy easter and and i'm like hmm what what does that mean to me you know mm-hmm. um and I, I i would say i don't think it's less meaningful because of my sort of agnostic position that i stand in now it's mm-hmm. just a different kind of meaning mm-hmm. you know for me i think what I've reflected upon on this particular day. So I understand what you're saying. It's, it's sort of like bringing up the idea of Valentine's Day. And it's like, hey, so do you not love your girlfriend or your wife 364 days besides the current day now, right? And I guess you're trying to gauge, well, why is this specific day being celebrated? And, you know, I think it's just like every other day. I think you're, you know, when, you, when it comes to your birthday, right? I think you're a year old and that obviously takes place through your maturing each and every day, right? Are you doing some of the same things? Are you changing? Are you thinking about life differently? You know, are you contemplating about things that you once thought about when you were younger and then you matured and got out of it? And now you, you're pressing forward. You're looking forward to what else can come of it. But for me, on a particular day like Good Friday, I think the reason why the significance is so high, it's sort of like the celebration of an anniversary. It's like you sort of reflect and ponder about what transpired on that particular day. And in this case, for those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, it's the 12 hours or so of the punishment that Christ went through for our sake. And I think when you sit down and think about it, for some, right, it's a day of celebration. And and I've had that conversation with my brother where he says that some people's thought process of a day is, is to get out and enjoy life, right? And for someone like me, it's sort of the day to remember exactly what happened on this particular day, right? And, and you know, everybody, I guess, processes a little bit differently. But I get what you're saying in the sense that, you know, uh, you know, celebrating and embracing that one particular day, is it really that much significant if we shouldn't or should we not, you know, observe it like every other day moving forward? But to me, there's something about, you know, the day of what transpired and and how gruesome it is. Right. And, you know, I don't know how many people have watched The Passion of the Christ, but that sort of gives you a a visual image of Christ and his humanity and what it took and the amount of confidence it took to actually go and complete the mission. Right. Because there's a mission on our behalf. and, And therefore, I think the reverence towards it. It's different for everyone in regards to how seriously they view, you know, what happened and the forgiveness of sins and the stripes that were put on him on the behalf of humanity's sins as a whole continuously. So I I get what you're saying on one end and I understand, you know, why not take that approach every single day? Why does it have to be driven on this specific day? And I guess it depends on, you know, where people land, right? Yeah, well, I I definitely agree with what you're saying about, you know, like that's something that deserves reverence. And I'm certainly not putting myself in a position of telling anyone how they should or if they should celebrate that. Um, mm-hmm. To me, just the very idea of, you know, a man, w- whatever have, means for him to have been the son of God, you know, willingly going to his death like that is extremely evocative and mm-hmm. stirring and, and means something. Um, yeah. And yeah, like, like, and you even said having that confidence. And, and that's something I think about a lot. Like what, what was the confidence? I, I don't think that, 
you know, the view of, well, he could have, you know, he was God, he could have jumped off the cross anytime he wanted is, is accurate. I, but I do think there's more nobility in the fact that, you know, he was at least man, a, a man enough to, to say, let this cup pass from me. Like that's, that's mm-hmm. crazy. He, he sought a way out, but also accepted that it had to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, when we get into much more deeper dialogue, I think what it was also is that, you know, the conversation Jesus had with his, you know, his father, with himself and his other deity form was an acknowledgement, I guess, in a much more deeper and profound way in First John, where he says, you know, let us not love with words or tongue, but in action and in truth. And here it is. He said, there's no greater love to lay down oneself for one's friends. So it's it's really pointing to the fact that obviously, as he began to move towards the stage of the hour that had come, there was an embracement and an acknowledgement that he saw the disciples and all those that would intentionally be disciples moving forward throughout history as friends and not just as people who followed him, strangers, right? And he said, you know, you're my friends because you know my father's business. So let's talk a little bit about your, I, I suppose, your view on Jesus, right? If I remember or recall, there was a conversation we had because we spoke prior, obviously, before, you know, agreeing to have a conversation like this, where you said that in regards to your study, you had, you were questioning the legitimacy of the Trinity, right? That there were some things that were inconsistent, or at least from church history that you weren't necessarily agreeing with. So at least share that with my audience about some of the things that you had concerns about. Yeah. I mean, I think when it comes to the Trinity, there's a lot of semantics around that, that I've never had really a productive conversation around it, but it doesn't, it doesn't trouble me a whole lot. I mean, I can, even when I was, you know, deeply practicing, so to speak, I, I didn't grapple with that. I felt like I had a different and appropriate concept of the father, the son and the Holy spirit. But when it comes to just the historicity of elements, they're, integral to uh to christianity i think there's a lot that is um very hard to just take at face value Uh and you know you can you can do research to figure out what elements are supported what had potential witnesses even though they're not around to testify um but even just in looking at kind of how the canon of the bible was formed the gospels uh certain things that are uh just you know not super well translated and things like that um i I think it becomes to me pretty apparent that not all of it is supposed to be taken as history most christians would agree not all of it is to be taken as exact history but i think a lot more of it is um narrativized beyond what uh what the modern church presumes So, so you're saying, so which elements, at least through your study, do you think that was probably exacerbated a little bit? Um, well, I, I mean, I, I could, I guess I could sort of pick and choose certain things, but I don't, I think like, so even if we look within the story of Jesus, there's some things that you say, like, how would that have been accurately recorded? You know, his, his prayers in the garden, like it's, it's a beautiful piece of the story in the garden of Gethsemane the night mm-hmm. before okay. whose his apostles are all asleep 
um, who's, who's recording that, you know? And, and so you look at things like that throughout the Bible, you say, you know, who wrote the creation story, like every, all these things where it kind of comes down to, well, God can inspire anyone. God can tell them what to write and what happened and things like that. And mm-hmm. again, if we just like nitpick on that point, we probably won't get far, but it's things, things like that, where it just seems mm-hmm. the more plausible explanation is that this is a blend of things that happened and things that were written into to add to a story, which might be perfectly appropriate in the context of who those stories were being relayed to, that they understood because it's not primarily a journalistic culture, that what they're receiving is some mix of story mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, real so, events, so to speak, as we would so, call it. So let's, let's, I guess, camp out there. So do you think it's not plausible or possible that the information in regards to crisis prayer hadn't been transferred to John to write it? What do you mean by transferred? Like revealed? In other words, like, yes. In other words, I, so in regards to what you're questioning, right, you're, you're trying to, and, and I think sometimes we do this a lot, is that based upon logically, right, you're, you're making a logical argument. You're saying in this particular situation, right, disciples are asleep. They're not present based upon the story, right? And here you have Jesus praying to God in the garden. And you're saying, well, logically, if they're all asleep, who's there presently to record this conversation that's being had? If, in fact, there was a conversation had, right? And I'm saying, is could it not be plausible that the actual conversation was transferred word for word to John through the Holy Spirit when he wrote it? Because there are, so, you know, I remember being, you know, as a young toddler, when you looked at the Bible, there was a it was a very different distinction between the words that were for regular people. And when Jesus spoke, there were words of bread, right? Which mm-hmm. means that obviously there's some sort of, you know, profound element to why these words are highlighted. And I'm, I suppose I'm saying in that conversation in the conversations throughout, even though we weren't previewed to it, right? There's an argument that I propose. And I say, I said this also in, in one of the, conversations I had about the four gospels, right? And I said, what makes it unique about the four gospels is that God wrote things through an autobiography and a biography at the same time. And what I mean is obviously there's a distinction between one who's alive and one who's dead. And there's a distinction between those who are writing it. And I'm saying something about the Bible in a whole captures this feeling of words that can be inspired, but then words that are direct and accurate to what he, uh, you know, God says, right? And, right, there's an understanding that God and his word are one and the same, right? So we get this understanding of, of inspiration, but then I think we also can get an understanding of information being passed through the spirit that allows what is being stated to be probably direct and probably a good and solid you know foundation of truth right and i think also yeah there are some mystery things that transpire because there's also in the the same bible i think towards the end of luke or maybe towards the end of john it said that 
Christ performed many more miracles, but there weren't enough pages for it to be recorded on. Right. Is it in all the world? It couldn't in be all of the world. So, yeah. so I'm saying there are obviously some lines there where you sit there and say, well, if God truly is who he says he is in, in regards to the question you, or the statement you brought up. Also, there is evidence and proof that, hey, there's 500 people who presently saw him. Right. And, you know, when we look at what transpired between Nero, who ended up murdering Christians and Christians willfully and accepting the reality that they witnessed and saw Christ. And therefore, they didn't have any sort of fear or concern about dying on the behalf of witnessing this person. It's really profound to see how much Christianity, at least how it was practiced, how it its effect was so blatantly and directly impacted a bunch of people that had a willingness to die for what they believed in, right? It kind of transformed to a conviction versus a preference. Because, right, we know a conviction is something you believe wholeheartedly no matter what. So if you have people that have a willingness to die over something that they saw and witnessed versus people who, you know, based upon new information, would change their point of view because they're not that much rooted in it, that you would see Christianity plunder, right? But it obviously excelled and it, it reached levels to which you know, the Apostle Paul, Thomas, all of them went out and dispersed the message over the world. That, that you know, profound effect, I don't think can be happened merely just based upon limited words. Like there had to be some sort of power attached to it that made the movement so, you know, escalate to the degree that it did. Like, what yeah, would you I say mean, to that? Yeah. Th that, is, that is definitely a compelling piece in, in that it deserves an explanation. Um, yeah. and I, I'm not one to rule out spiritual explanations. I mean, I, to me, there's so many mysteries in life that some, some otherworldly force is most definitely to me, uh, in play. And I think, you know, how we explain that each of us individually is it, it always requires some degree of faith, whether we're calling ourselves religious or not. There's certain mysteries that we say, I'm, I'm going to wager to some degree on that one and build out my sense of logic from that so even the most like reason adherent person has some elements of faith in there so and i would say like for me being somewhat agnostic philosophically toward everything not necessarily convinced that we can package absolute truth that's sort of my best defense that faith always comes into play um but you know when I realized when I was, when I would have called myself a diehard Christian, like, let me go out like the apostles, uh, I would have given more or less the same explanations you just gave. Um, because to me, I was so convinced of certain elements that I was like, well, okay, 500 people saw it, good enough. Or, you know, the apostles died brutal deaths for this. There we go. Like, that's, that's, my, that's my evidence for the things that seem uh, otherwise inexplicable. But once other things sort of fall out of place, then that's where you go, okay, that doesn't hold up anymore. Um, and, a, a, you know, I would say that those details in themselves don't, don't prove much because there are other things that people have died for or where hundreds, if not thousands of people have claimed to, to witness a miracle that didn't correspond with Christ. Um, there's also reported miracles of Christ that aren't in the Bible. So that's an interesting side note. But 
Yeah, it's so I, I don't rule out a, a spiritual or an otherwise, you know, otherworldly explanation. But when it comes to calling anything a, a fair proof, um, even even if proof isn't necessarily what I'm looking for, I just uh, I, I think there has to be a, a reason to say you absolutely believe it that sort of precedes that. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so let me ask you this question then, right? Because I remember having this conversation with you off the air, right? And my biggest thing is when it when it comes to the legitimacy of Christ, right? And it comes to uh, speaking to those that question the legitimacy of Christ. There's an episode that I created, Proven versus Revealed. I don't know if you've gotten a chance to, to hear that one. I did, yeah. But okay, so what were your thoughts on that? The idea that I've raised and whatnot. What do you yeah, think? so um, proven versus revealed is, I mean, that's more or less exactly a question that I ask in any debate, formal or casual, with a Christian because I want to know as a basis for any discussion on this do you believe because you academically arrived at what you consider a proof? or you had an experience that proved it sufficiently to you. And I would say likewise when you engage with anyone who's not necessarily, you know, a believer, that that should be that, that's a common ground you should try to establish. Because if you if you do say that it's something that was revealed to you, then the 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 non-believer can easily just say, well, okay, then I'm waiting on the experience and I'm not to blame for the fact that I haven't had that. If you are saying at the end of the day the historical evidence is is proof enough well then okay now the, the burden is on me to decide if that's worth sharing in, in your belief about so um i don't I, I don't know if i recall any of your your talking points so specifically that i can really comment exactly on what you said mm -hmm. but uh that's kind of what the with that yeah dichotomy because brings up for me mm -hmm. Because what I, I suppose what I'm saying is, is that if you're trying to prove something, right, you need some sort of evidence. And even in my study for Nelsat question, right, you have a conclusion and then you have premises that back up or support or lack thereof don't support a conclusion, right? And there's some evidence that you can question the legitimacy of whether or not it's evidential or whether or not it's cited to perceive you to get you to believe that it's enough when in fact there's flaws in them, right? And I think there's books that exist on the outward spectrum of saying, hey, you know, the evidence for Christ, right? Over 5,000 different statistical facts that back up what transpired in a conversation to those that examined the body, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it, if you're, you're looking for hardcore evidence from a secular point of view, and you're trying to at least come to some sort of belief that that is the direction you should go, I think it's plausible to believe that you could go that way. But I also think that if you're already set in your mind and there's no openness to the belief that these things are possible, then I think that you're hitting down a, a dead end, right? I think what it is is, for me, your heart in terms of preparation to accept something as true has to be prepared. And I think, at least if you 
I've spoken to a lot of atheists. They're already set in their belief that they're not open to the possibility. And and I say this because there's a conversation that Jesus has, I believe, with Nicodemus, right? And the conversation he has, maybe it's not Nicodemus. It might be a expert in the law. And he asked him, you know, you're an expert in the law. He was an expert in the law. He said, you're an expert in the law. How do you read this, right? Because what he's trying to gauge there is your, technically what he's trying to gauge there is he's trying to see what are your stereotypes? What are your biases, right? And what happens is a lens that you see the world through can be tainted, right? And if you're seeing it through a lens where you're already in denial, then nothing that's provided you can ever be concrete or can turn the tide to you actually believing it. But I think when it comes to Christ in general, I think what changes or allows a person to embrace the possibility of faith is their mentality and their thought process and their viewpoint has to be open. And I think if it's not open, then any possibility of receiving anything that someone provides is never going to be, you know, provided to them. Why? Because they already have. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if if I'm telling you at the start, though, that... I'm open to, not only open to, but I'm more or less assuming that there's an other realm beyond us that is to explain certain things. Uh I certainly can't rule out the possibility that there's been a resurrection, that everything within that story of Jesus is true. So if that constitutes openness, I don't know. But, uh, you know, that's, I mean, that is another thing I would... I think when when I'm defining or talking about openness... I, I'm saying I'm 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 kind of speaking more to the possibility that the way that we've sort of viewed everything contextually either has been based upon the influencement of potential Hollywood, but or sometimes the influencement of just miracles in itself. So from what I'm gathering, you said that you you're open to the possibility of these things, right? That these things can be possibly true. But I think when you approach things from an intellectual standpoint, I still think that there are some logical points that you're still looking to be convincing to you. It's still blocked off and it might be blocked off because I suppose when it comes to trying to embrace something to be true, I think what limits the capacity of comprehension is because we want it to be viewed in a way that can be concise and received from our point of view. Right. Instead of viewing it through how God has orchestrated it. Right. And the reason why I say that is because I think in any game, there's a, there are rules and everything's designed in a particular fashion. And I think sometimes if we color outside the lines, that coloring outside the lines is because there's questionable belief that, hey, I'm not necessarily agreeing with how this has been structured or how this has been orchestrated, right? And therefore, my coloring outside of lines points to probably my inability to be in in a line with how it's set, right? And there's no, to me, I think humans in general have this, this coherent issue with authority, right? I think <laughs> I've been when I was young. Authority is a, is a big point when it comes to you know, why it's put into place or why it's done in a certain fashion, because you're, you know, you know, you don't know what you know, and you don't know what you don't know. 
mm-hmm. and therefore you're trying to gauge how I should pre- how I should perceive these things. And the wisdom element comes through to those who provided those rules or regulations, like your parents. We can use that as a as a basis consensus for the foundation of what we're saying, and they would provide you with an order or a premise, or at least in the Bible context, a precept. And you not knowing that much might say, well, why? Right. Or if we, we take it the biblical route, why did you form me this way? So you're trying to gaze. Why are these rules and regulations put into place? And is me coloring outside of the line showing a lack of reverence for why you put them into this place? And I think because we're human beings and we have the ability to choose and reason, we therefore can find it either to be troublesome because it's not being viewed the way we want to or controlling because we might say the way that it's being structured it's being structured where you limited the capacity on allowing me to think outside of the norms that you provided for me right like everything i'm saying makes sense right so far right are you you're following what i'm saying can you just clarify what you mean by the by coloring outside the lines okay so in other words if if i give you a path and i say take this path right and i say by taking this path this is the easy route you can go and you start along this path, but then you have ideas to go uh, this way or that way. That is what I would perceive to be the coloring outside the lines. Like you've been given clear instructions to take a path that's going to get you there faster. But I think the optimum, the, you being very optimistic might say, well, it seems to be that this route that you're providing me to walk on is has worked for you. However, I want to try this way. I want to try that way. And what I'm saying is, is that the instruction that's been provided says you should take this route, but because you're you're naive or maybe you're you're not totally in belief of the route, you might try all the alternatives, and along the way you might get lost. Mm-hmm. So that's what well, I'm saying is that naturally, I said human beings have that view where you're provided or given strategically a certain view, and because of the openness that we have we don't always necessarily embrace it. Like there's room for play. And that's based upon our own sometimes immaturity, sometimes, you know, ignorance, right? Because we don't know what we don't know. And therefore we're only going based upon, you know, our intuition, what it is. Yeah, that but I think, I think if I'm understanding what you're, what you're talking about, I think what you're describing as play to me is it a very important part of figuring out what you believe. And my problem was more that I stayed inside the lines for so long. So mm-hmm. what you're describing, it's, it's kind of actually my other cautionary thing that I would say to any theist engaging in debate is don't assume, uh, you know, I'm not trying to like call you out. I'm not like really trying to be constructive with this. Mm-hmm. Don't assume that uh, the non-theist has an agenda or a reason from convenience for not wanting to believe. Very often they do want to have this faith that you have, mm-hmm. and they either intellectually cannot, um, you know, or some other reason, but it's not usually motivated by, I want to live a different way. And honestly, if you if you imply, you know, that that's, that that's their basis, they might just think, well, it sounds like that's your your basis. And you're just an afterlife hedonist and, you know, arguing Mm -hmm. from convenience for your own reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, So and, you know, also don't don't assume that they haven't come from a place of genuinely 
trying to have that openness and receive whatever divine proof can be revealed to them. So, you know, all that uh, to say, mm-hmm. yeah, I think, uh, I think, mm-hmm. go ahead. No, when I, when I, so uh, let me kind of unpack a little, just a little bit more. When I, when I speak about the coloring outside of lines, I'm speaking more to pivoting from what you've been taught and leaning more or being more open because what you've been taught, you sort of feel rejected by a, a lot of the things. See, I think, so there's, I would say there's a big difference between reading or understanding things coherently for yourself and being taught particular things and finding that what you've been taught doesn't align ultimately with the idea that you believe based upon what the structure has always been. So if we take Christianity, for example, right? And we and let's throw in those who are Catholics, for an example, right? The, the place in which a Christian can be is structured by many different denominations. A lot of those different denominations are hinging on different traditional aspects and leanings based upon man's perception of how a person should behave. Mm-hmm. And it's the same concept with Catholics, right? There are some traditional aspects that are added in and that add an element to, you know, why a person believes can obviously turn the tide on whether I should embrace it, you know, coherently and sincerely, or am I finding something wrong with the structure of it, but not the actual proof or evidence or legitimacy of the actual thing. and I'm a huge proponent that when it comes to trying or wanting to embrace God, I think that's what brings the whole personal relationship aspect to church as a structured or a, a, a business aspect. And when I'm saying about coloring outside of lines, I'm saying you've had the time to evaluate Christianity separate from the entity and how you was raised. And then after you've exposed yourself to that information, you've then decided to pivot. Like this this is not working for me, right? And then what I'm saying is, is after being previous to the information, at least godly inspired, separate from those entities, there's still denial there. And I, I would say at least the denial comes from the wanting to accept or wanting to allow the accountability to take hold as to why this is the reason why you should believe it. So that's what I mean about the coloring outside the lines. Because I think a lot of us have a have an openness to color outside the lines, but it's based upon man's perception of what you wanted to believe, but what you were exposed to. You sure, yeah. And, and I, I really try not to be, you know, the type of, um, well, a lot, a lot of people come out of church and they're so jaded by their experience that they, yeah. I, I guess the expression would be throw out the baby with the bathwater, baby Jesus, mm-hmm. as it were in this case. Um, and I, I try not to do that. You know, I, I try to be very logical and not spiteful in how I treat that because mm-hmm. of course humans are going to get certain things wrong. Of course, humans are going to be guilty of some hypocrisies and errors. Mm-hmm. And having been at the point where I myself was sufficiently, you know, radical about it, for lack of a better word, that I probably propagated some of the same fearful things that bothered me as a kid like i get it like mm-hmm. that that all makes sense and and you know doesn't invalidate 
the arguments for Christ in general. Mm -hmm. Um, But I still think maybe a a better starting point than trying to prove, you know, the historicity, because that's not what threw me off the path. It was more, why am I continuing to say that I believe something with such huge implications when quite honestly, like, I don't, I, I don't know what I'm even saying. I believe um, I've studied so the think, Bible. I know how to, you know, give explanations. But if I'm being sincere, I'm more acting on fear than genuine conviction here. Yeah. So, this, uh, so let me. I guess we can unpack that a little bit. So, because that's a, that's a very good point, right? And I think a lot of times when we're growing up, because I, I that's how I went on my journey. I was raised Christian, right? However, there was a much more deeper, profound way that I wanted to experience God, not based upon the faith of my family, but my individual understanding of my relationship with God separate from my family. Because, again, I believe based upon scripture, when judgment day comes, we're not being judged as a family. We're being judged as individuals. Right. And I think that God holds you accountable based upon your individual choices, not based upon who made the choice for you, which is why there's the belief that you, as you develop into a, a woman or a man, there's a certain age group where now there, there's a certain age where now you're expected to make choices solely based upon your own desires and interests versus someone else's. And, and I think that that structure, that, that element of growth needs to be shaped and fashioned in a certain way. And I think there are biblical influencement, regardless of where you come from, that plays a role into your values, into how you see the world, right? And whether you're wrapping it in a different, a different gift wrap or you're wrapping it in a biblical gift wrap, I think it's more or less simultaneously the same thing on my behalf. That's what I believe, right? And I think what it is, is once I went on my individual journey on my own to discover and understand God, that's when I began to search and look. And I, I, at least how I got to where I am now is because when I'm trying to find out truth about a God, I have to believe that there's some sort of evidence provided, right? And I think when I say evidence, I mean something that I can go to and come to my own conclusions, right? And I think from the supernatural experiences that people go through, I think they're great, right? Because it wows you, it shocks you at your core, and it makes you realize that the way you see the world is not this condensed version of it, but there might be, and there's a possibility that there's something greater than me that's allowed me to be previewed to an experience such as that. However, there has to be, and this is just based upon my opinion, there has to be something that God would have to leave for me to steer me in that direction, right? And allow me to ponder and fight and and really struggle and also at the same time question, you know, the things that push me in that direction to believe it. So that, is I guess, that a leads... necessary question, though, because is that not could you not equally just say that you have a certain curiosity and intellect that is you know geared toward toward those subjects no i so what i'm saying is if if god wants us to be clearly followers of him 
And he wants us to be recognize the distinction between him and everything else. What I'm saying is for him not to provide anything for you to direct you to him would be nonsensical, right? And I think when we so when we think about some of the practices that have been passed on generationally, it's through the the oral it's not through a written code, but it's through oral traditions, right? And through those oral traditions, because pen, you know, pen and paper wasn't solidified then, you get based upon what they consider people, which in African spirituality or African African culture, which they were considered the libraries. So people were considered the libraries. And that we can say the same thing for before the Bible was written. The information was passed on from that person to the next person. Right. And we obviously do biblical understand that the actual words of wisdom came from a person. It didn't come from a written code. Right. Now, we know the written code, at least in the Old Testament, to be the commandments through how what was prov provided, at least, you know, through Jewish tradition. However, I think what makes Christianity so profound and amazing is you had an actual word which is person jesus christ come and execute or apply the very things that were written and fulfilled it right he said i did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill the very thing that people have questioned about so that to me is like a huge distinction and difference in human society historically that deserves to be applauded because when you have all these things written and these rules and regulations put into play we learned that through Jesus Christ, some of the rules and regulations that were applied, not taking into consideration the emotional integrity of the person, wasn't being considered, right? So when he when we looked at a lot of the things that were being done, even going back to old, you know, biblical history and a lot of things, like where is the love and the grace for these rules and regulations for people who can't do for themselves? So for God, in my opinion, based upon the biblical account to personally come down and question a lot of those things and also establish and fulfill a lot of those things, it kind of opened up my eyes to see that, yes, you can have a lot of rules and regulations, but as we say, some rules are meant to be broken. And as we say, some rules, even though it's desired to eliminate chaos and create structure, there still needs to be an example of one we can look at and say we ought to follow that particular thing or at least strive to get close to it. And I think historically there is no example other than that account that provides us with how we ought to. We have individuals that have strived to express or live a life that we should be eminent from. But then we, we do what we do is we say, you know what? This person was sound in this area, but in this other area of their life, there was question, right? Whether it was Martin Luther King and they calling him a womanizer or whether it was any other person in history where they had sound ideas, but their life never exemplified that. And based upon scripture, right? I don't recall any historical evidence ever saying that Jesus actually committed some sort of sin or caused some sort of chaotic problem that it was recorded and documented so we, we can question the legitimacy of who he was and how he walked right so that's why so when i talk about having rules and regulations and i talk about someone exemplifying some sort of truth or something for people to be wild about and consider to me 
if you if you want me to believe something, then you would have to provide a actual person or actual process of elimination to say, yo, the way this person lived or the way this person walked, their life was eminent to the degree that this is possible. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. And of of the concepts that you just discussed, you hit on one that was crucial for me at a decision point of saying, yes, that's a concept in Christianity that I want to stick with and kept me on that journey for, for quite a while, which is the law and spirit concept. And mm-hmm. I talk about that in my book. Like there was a moment and a passage, specifically the one from Jeremiah 31 that ends up being echoed in Hebrews 10 about, you know, no more shall every man have to teach his neighbor, right? It brings the whole Old Testament to New Testament polarity into this. It starts to make sense, right? So that was the view of Christianity that I was totally on board with and still respect it outside the context of having uh, <laughs> turned everything else into law. But I'll, you know, I'll expound on that in a second. Yeah. Um, so that that concept is integral, right? But I, I think what I did, and probably a lot of other Christians do, is see to see certain concepts in the Bible still as a, I was a very young student of philosophy. <laughs> Literally, I was in philosophy 100 at the time. And seeing concepts in the Bible that I, that I hadn't yet really, uh, I hadn't yet been exposed to really in any other place. And I was realizing, oh, that it, this is talking about that thing that I think about. And so then just being really excited about it and going like, yeah, like if I can justify the other things now in the Bible that don't necessarily make sense, or at least like choke it down, then I'm actually pretty into this. So that's where everything else, you know, the the usual explanations of things that didn't make sense became acceptable to me. And and I very much identified with it. Um, And only once I was more versed in other you know, viewpoints on those same subjects, which again, not to like knock on, uh, you're a very intellectual and philosophically versed individual. So I'm not saying you haven't, you know, explored these things, but for me, then finding that those things, you know, were discussed in other works, you know, throughout history, and that the Bible didn't have this exclusive take on that concept necessarily, was like, Mm -hmm. okay, so that was, that ameliorates some of how I did view it before, but it doesn't make it an exclusive source of genius on the subject. Yeah, Does that make sense? I, yeah, I, I can understand that. And and that's why I think what the Bible does a, a phenomenal job at is it provides you and it warns you with numerous amounts of different versions of truth, right? Like if I want to present something truthful to you, there has to be an understanding. So I, you ever heard of the parable when Jesus talked about the, the wheat and the tear? And he talked about, and this is what I'm saying, like some of these things biblically, at least through the parable design, to me, it's like things I've never seen before. And I've read Socrates, I've read Aristotle and their ways of trying to explain things in deeper fashion. And there's even comments and statements about how those individuals learned from some African philosophers, which to this day, when I went and studied philosophy and I was looking for, you know, Africans that were philosophers, I didn't find nothing. They were individuals that presented philosophical thoughts, 
but not actual philosophers. And I think philosophers, philosophers and Stoics and all those sort of things was much more rooted in Greek, right? And and trying to explain things and later on German, right? And, and, and trying to see some of those ideas and whatnot. And something that I, that, that I found in that story is that what makes truth from a lie so compellingly distinctive at the same time necessary in how you view the world is that the lie is only present because of the truth, right? The same way light always exists, but well, light always had existed. And the only reason why darkness is, is even possible is if the light doesn't shine in it, right? I think darkness itself doesn't have an existing feature unless light is absent for the absence of lightness is darkness. So if light always shined, there will be no need for darkness. If truth mm -hmm. was always present, then there would be no need for lie or falsehood. But because of this alternative, right? I think at the end of the day, when you have truth and you have light, then those other elements don't have a play. They only have a play when we want to be contradictory to what is the obvious, right? And I think a lot of times there's, there's a theory called Occam's theory, right? And Occam's theory is really broken down to the point that if you have to jump through hoops and you have to think deeply past the original thought process, it's probably not true, right? It's too much that you have to go through to sort of preeminently come up with an idea. Like I'll give you a great example. Like if you, if you have a girlfriend and your girlfriend cheats on you, right. And, you, and the evidence is obvious, right. It, it, I, I'm sorry for people out there that potentially this might've happened to them, but I, I kind of want to, you know, pull the wool over your eyes and kind of give you something basic. If you have to literally defend her, in so many different ways. And let me say defend him, right? Because I want to make sure it's on both sides. If you have to defend him in a way where you're taking leaps and bounds and you're doing all these, you know, movements to say, oh, this person or that person, that's not who they are, none of that stuff. To me, the much more complicated, complex reality of the situation is usually will lean towards something that's absolutely obvious. The more in depth you have to sort of defend the same thing with the resistance of God. I think God's existence is obvious, but then you have people that fight more to delegitimize this belief than those who obviously embrace it. And I understand that's not an intellectual great argument because you're saying, oh, you don't want to dive deep. Like you don't want to go. I, I see you chopping at the bit. Is it no, yeah, I'm only <laughs> chomping at the bit because I think Occam's razor applies more in the other direction when it comes to supernatural claims, whenever somebody says that they've had a certain divine experience, uh -huh. then you have to ask yourself, is it more likely that I just experienced something beyond what my senses could possibly produce uh -huh. or that I simply checked into a, uh -huh. a thought process I'm unaccustomed to, uh -huh. or even if you have, even if somebody has like a vision, right? It's like, well, is it more likely that the laws of nature were suspended in my favor and I got to see, uh, you know, someone who died and was resurrected thousands of years ago or that I, my brain produced that? Well, the, the, the reason why, so the reason why I don't lean towards that side, because I think life at itself is much more complex to so the view, the Occam's theory through 
the existence of God and and because I believe if we if God is who we believe Him to be, then He's very complex and intellectual God, way past either one of us can could potentially even imagine, right? So I think Occam's theory in regards to anti-polymorphizing God doesn't work because we know God has so many elements to him and we live in such a big world. So there's so many different outcomes to perceive and acknowledge God. But then when I look at Occam's theory in regards to scenarios or situations where I want to be a bit more difficult, I think it comes to, I think it comes to when we're eliminating or we're, we're trying to have this belief in a person I think Awesome Theory plays a bigger role in saying this scenario, this situation is a lot more or less complicated than we think. So I think Occam's Theory works in terms of human to human interaction, but I don't think Occam's Theory's work in terms of God and who he is and what he is and his play and recurrence to society at large. So I think the actual theory in psychology is much more rooted and profound limited to a humanistic perspective but not to a deity perspective so that's okay i'll give you that because there's certain things about weighing natural versus supernatural that you can't Mm -hmm. put into a probability yeah so i wouldn't do that with god but i would do that with human beings because we're not very complex individuals i think there are times where we're lying there are times we're telling truth there are times the percentage of how far a thing can go is really not that complicated it's usually the latter more than it's the later. So that's that's how I would view it. But, you know, I guess to kind of kind of tackle a little bit more of the point that we were raising from an intellectual perspective about God is that, you know, that to me is what drove me to embrace, you know, Christianity. And I understand Christianity still has a lot of umbrellas. And again, we're trying to sort out and i think what we do from a humanity perspective that is troublesome and problematic is we want to view god and everything in it in categories and i've said this before this before to friends of mine and i don't think they truly understand it so i'll share it with you and get your thoughts i believe that when it comes to where we are in christ it's not a matter of christian label it's a matter of personal relationship with god so I believe that Lutherans who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ will apparently allow them to gain access to heaven. I believe Catholics who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ will apparently allow them to have access to enter into heaven. I think when we look at the religious structure and we try to align ourselves with those different structures that aren't allowing you to understand the basis of what the gospel message is, I think it limits you. So I think the title Christianity is problematic, especially in the 1800s, because everything that followed along with it, the murder, the killings, the judgment, right? And even in church structure now, where we have a lot of problematic things that are transpiring. And I think the focus is not so much on the structure of the building, the ideology of Christianity, but it's more apparently about the personal relationship and how the church transitioned from a building to an actual person, right? So I think the engagement of how a person makes me feel, which is why I think is brilliant in, in terms of what God did, because he turned around and took the moral aspect of it and put it in a person that provides an example. If we're going based upon moves and regulations and structures, we're going to fall. 
We're going to make mistakes. It's not going to ever be exactly the way it is. But if we're, if we're acting in love and in truth, and that's through a person that provides the example, then that becomes the obvious thing that we should lead towards, which is why I'm like, intellectually, when I think about it all, no matter what rules and regulations, no matter what structures we put into play, to me, that would never make up the actual example of Jesus Christ, the person. And that personal relationship that understands your faults, your problems, your troubles, your, under, your, your questionable things that you wonder about when you look at yourself and the mistakes that you make. And what more way to be much more personable than to have a person who walked the life that you couldn't walk, who died the death that you should have died, and who lives the life that you strive to live, where you take it out of structure or context and you put it in a person that understands all these feelings and emotions and experiences that you go through. And I think biblically, at least Hebrews puts it in that way where we understand that Christ was, Christ was created like us to not only understand us, but to also redeem us. So to me, to me, that is such a distinct difference from at least everything that I've ever read. And I feel like everything I ever read is, structured around rules and regulations where we learn at least Old Testament that no one can keep the law perfectly, not one. So to me, at least intellectually, when it comes to addressing sin, when it comes to addressing perfection, when it comes to addressing living life, I don't think there's ever been another belief system that kind of lines it up in that way where to me it's plausible and realistic for me to follow and i mean i've searched them all like literally mm -hmm. i've read up on everything and i understand how it could be complicated because i i think you raise a good point at least when we spoke that to put it all in a person is very hard to 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 want to submit or agree to that idea the like idea of it all being, being embodied in jesus yes like i think that's very when you brought it up to me in the sense, because you're saying, I remember the conversation we had and, and we talked about how, you know, basically to question, like for, to put all of these things into an actual person, to limit it to a person and take out all the other structure. At one point it does us justice, but in another, like you still had to take a leap of faith to believe that it was done through a person. Right. And I think when it comes to human beings and we look at ourselves and we see the struggles that we have, you're trying to tell me that there's an actual person that can empathize with that. And I think a lot of us, when we look at that, I think there's more doubt into that. And I think that's why some people kind of attach themselves to just rules and regulations and laws and going based upon how I feel. And I think they're gonna continuously and forever be in conflict with that than to say like this is all like to limit it to this one aspect of it kind of takes out the fun of being adventurous about it all okay well so here's the thing i think that mm -hmm. the character of jesus is such that it's very few people are going to say i hate that concept you know I, I as a kid i thought there were a lot more people who just hated jesus but if you look at all the attributes you just described um, unless somebody really doesn't like the, the turn the other cheek concept or the implication that they might be guilty of anything ever, why not like, yeah, okay. He's the picture of goodness and teaches 
good morals and become sacrificial. Yeah, what's not to like? I guess the real question becomes uh, how you respond to that. And that's where I think the legalized form of religion, even though he was teaching against it, he was saying, all right, you've struggled long enough with the, with the law that can't be fulfilled. I'm offering you something else. Then, you know, nonetheless, inevitably, in the process of trying to replicate Christ in as a body, the body of Christ, and then having leadership structures within that, um, it's not not even just the exception to the rule that that gets perverted, and we turn it back into law, like dogs returning to their vomit. So that's uh, and even on an individual level, I'm not even just saying like, yeah, the hierarchy of the church messes it up. Like even individually, just trying to say, all right, I'm inspired by that story, but there's something I'm supposed to do in response to it in order to be part of, you know, to adopt the title of Christian. That's where it inevitably becomes, there's some guesswork, but I'm obligated to state that it's certainty or that I know something or that I feel something that may or may not be true beyond admiration for the character. Mm. I get that. So, so, I mean, now that we discuss this, what else would you say is on your mind that you want to discuss in regards to this whole discussion? Yeah. I mean, that maybe well, I can provide some light to, but not maybe not some satisfaction, right? Cause I think satisfaction only comes at you know your willingness to whether or not it, it changes your view on it or not but i guess yeah so i guess let's take some time to see what are some things that you know that you have a hard time accepting or believing and maybe i can provide some yeah some okay well yeah. the, really the the reason that i take a, a position of even voice a position against it is certainly okay. not to try to dissuade anyone who actually does feel like they have a reasonable premise for faith and feels that it's encouraging and uplifting and productive, I wouldn't want to dissuade them from that. But my experience and the reason I wrote this book and kind of what I've discovered from other people in a similar position in their lives is that the actual fallout not just of abuses in the church and things like that, but the actual byproduct of a belief becoming a belief system is that ideas are stated as fact about the supernatural, which we can only know so much about, which are a lot to take on, especially as a kid. And, you know, in my case was pretty traumatic. And Beyond that, you know, even if those ideas are held sincerely and presented charitably, if we make claims about the divine and that we have a certain relationship that implies some sort of direct line, then we automatically have to dignify others making the same claim, even if we don't agree, because we're like, well, we have the revelation from God that says this, you have the revelation from God that says that. What can you really say to dispute somebody else who is operating on a different claim about the divine? So that's why I think it actually matters beyond just, hey, sit with it, you know, like try to invite the spirit, have that faith. Like, yeah, 
you know, I'll, I'll do that all day. Like what, what else, you know, if it's just a matter of kind of, it becomes a Pascal's wager almost at that point, but just what, what am I willing to sacrifice in pursuit of the truth? Yeah. Okay. I'll spend my life seeking it if that's what it means. But then at some point I have to weigh the cost and say, what, what actually is on the line beyond my own humility? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what it is, is there's mm-hmm. an effect on humans. It, it, there's opportunity cost if there is possibly other sources and avenues of truth. And then there's the dignifying other radical belief systems. Mm-hmm. So uh, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, right? I want to make sure I'm capturing what it is that you're saying. You're saying that the problem or the concern Right, so let's use concern. I think concern is a bit more reasonable here. The concern that you have about Christianity or the idea of Christianity in comparison to other belief systems that exist out there is that you have everyone claiming to have the truth or evidence or proof of that truth based upon some divine book or divine action that is calling to your action to believe in it. And what it does is the distinction or the understanding, the distinction between the two can be extremely complicated because this evidence and proof of how this sort of belief has changed people for, for who they are and has brought them to a place to want to live and be better than they were once before they were invited to that said thing. And therefore, if I'm getting it right, you're saying that because you have all these different ideas that you know, come from these different belief systems and there's some success to them, then really what is it that is the problem? Am I getting you right? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I guess what I'm saying is if, if people are adopting something as a true, what what they call a belief, but Mm -hmm. really it's like, well, this was presented to you in a package and you took the whole package. Mm -hmm. Well, then by, by nature of, how they're receiving that there's mm-hmm. obviously some disingenuous component there. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and then, but then on the other hand, there are those who can really explain why they believe what they believe. And I'm more power to you because mm-hmm. I can't explain, you know, every single thing that I assent to um, mm-hmm. can only give a, you know, axioms for what, what I uh, venture toward. So, okay. so there, there's always going to be an element of that. So I'm not mm-hmm. saying everybody's belief system has to be perfectly cohesive in every way, mm-hmm. but a lot of things get adopted under the religious label that mm-hmm. are like, well, do you really believe that? Or, and, and in most cases with people who are, have a very simplistic view, it's mostly about, all right, here's what I've been told gets me into heaven and I'll go along with just about anything else and mm-hmm. say, I believe that too. Mm-hmm. And they've barely questioned it. So again, not to straw man, you know, people like yourself who are actually digging for for real answers, but that's what it is in the majority of cases. Mm-hmm. And that's what I feel like I'm propagating if I err on the side of, yeah, I'm a, I, I'm a fan of Christ, so call me Christian. No, I'm not part of what most people are calling Christian. Mm-hmm. So, okay, unpack that last ending point that you're making. So you're saying yeah, okay. you're, so, you're a fan of Christianity, you, you, but not a fan of his his offspring? No, I'm saying, well, yeah, sort of, because with everything that I've that that we've talked about positively about 
Christ and other views of the concept in general that I'm like, yeah, I, I could be on board with that. Mm-hmm. Um, to whatever extent I think that what I'm saying aligns with the truth that Jesus or Christ intended to convey, I could say I'm Christian, you know, and for a while I was sort of between that, you know, the mm-hmm. two and erred on the side of, yeah, I'll still call myself that. But now it's, yeah, because I don't want to be lumped into that group. And I realize um, there's not a lot of room for fringe uh, epistemologies or spiritual theories in the church. I better just stay outside of that. Uh, okay, so wait, before you go, so let me ask this. So what are your thoughts to what Jesus said when he said, if you, def- if you, if you deny me in front of men, I would deny you in front of my father in heaven. So in other words, yeah, that's scary. So, yeah, so that's because <laughs> you you made you just made the statement. You said, "Well, I'm cool with who Jesus was," and I believe there was an individual. Gandhi said, "I like your Jesus, but I don't like your the the people that claim to be Christian, right?" Because he was pointing. But then that, that that sort of goes back to the original point that I had made that there's a huge distinction to those who call themselves. So call themselves Christians based upon the title, and there are actually those who live a life worthy of their calling and present the message in a loving way and not a not not a ridiculing or damned way towards someone who doesn't believe. And yeah, I believe that a lot of the people that do call themselves Christians, no, not every single one of them are actually living a Christian lifestyle or actually presenting, you know, the message of Christ in a loving way, right? So I think when you do a reevaluation of what it means to be, because I I love the title follower of Christ. And the reason why I love the title follower of Christ is because your life is supposed to be in contrary or aligned with following Christ in every way, in every fashion of your being. Right. Where if you say Christian, we go to the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 44, and we see that the term Christian was something that was titled to those who follow Christ. But it was really apparently provided by the Catholic Church was how we get the term Christian. Right. So I think what is and that's in the scripture. And a lot of people don't know that it's for those who don't know, book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 44. So I think when you start discussing Christianity, you're really trying to accent and i think c.s lewis puts it this way are you a christian are you a good christian or you're just not a very good christian right and the reason why he creates the distinction is because we get the term lukewarm right and and we get the term you know when it comes to being a follower of christ and the judgment that comes along with it i think the big problem that we have as a whole at least within the body is the way we internalize everything that we've been provided, everyone is different on how they're internalizing it. Some are internalizing it and using it as a weapon. Some are internalizing it and really trying to live a life that's amazing and doing the right things and giving people the opportunity to express themselves. Because I'm one of those people where I feel that as a believer, I think no one is ever too far and no one is ever too sanctified. <laughs> and the reason why I say that is because those who think that they don't have the ability to be redeemed by Christ uh, can be easily, their sins and every mistake can easily be reconciled. And those who deem themselves to be safe 
are the very ones where Jesus says, you know, when people get to him or are going to come knocking at the gates of heaven, he's going to say, I never knew you. And the reason why he's going to say, I never knew you is because there's certain aspects within the gospel message that weren't practiced or neither implemented. So prime example is Matthew 25 that speaks about if you see somebody hungry, give them something to eat. Somebody thirsty, give them something to drink. Somebody in jail, go visit them. I think there's certain elements, at least in Gospel uh, chapter Gospel of John chapter 15, where it says, they will know you are my disciples based upon how you love one another. So I think, yes, you can call yourself Christian, but I think after going through the Gospels and going through how to live the Christian difference, there are certain things that are evident that's expected of you, at least if you're being responsive to the Gospel, that should attract and lure people who see you and see Christ through you, right? And I think people are trying to still figure that out. And I think that's why we're all on different trajectories and stages in our lives, because there are some who get it and exercise it right away. There are others who, you know, give the title itself a bad rep, and therefore it causes people to question the legitimacy of the faith in general. And that's because they don't realize that as believers, we're supposed to be the eyes and feet of Christ. And when we don't do that, we taint and destroy the messaging of Christ that's supposed to be eminent through each and every one of us who carry on the image of God. So I think that's a very conflicting and obvious thing that goes on. And unfortunately, that can't be corrected, right? We can attempt to correct it, but everyone individually has a choice to make. And that choice could obviously destroy someone else's visualization of Christianity. And that messaging or that behavior can prompt someone to go to Christ. And I think we have the ups and downs of that. So I do want to commend you and say that everything that you're, you're, you're concerned about or you have questions about, I think is realistic. I think it's honest. And I think if anyone who is trying to find Christ or they're trying to live a life well, it's kind of foolish not to believe that these are things that you have to battle with and figure out and decide for yourselves what it is. So by no means do I think any of the questions that you ask today or that you, you, you still have to ask or statements you have to say, it should be viewed in a damning way, right? God says, come, let us reason together. I think reasoning is one of the gifts that's been given to us and trying to come to a place of comfort and realistic expectation for the way you want to be, I think is, is admirable. It's needed. And I think Jordan Peterson puts it better. I think a lot of people that jump into the pool and this might've been you, whether forcefully or, or embracing, or I would say adopted into the belief and you're not so sure if you actually believe it. I think it's important that you have to reevaluate exactly what this means to you and what's it going to be moving forward and if you haven't thought about it thoroughly then yes you should not follow you should not let the blind lead the blind and lead you all into a ditch right i think you have to do what you're doing making sure that you believe it for the right reasons and making sure that it makes the most sense to you and if it doesn't try to come to a place where you can rest and say that i'm here for the right reasons and therefore where, however it plays out this is where I want to be. And I, and I encourage anyone out there that's trying to find that. I think you should. Yeah. And I'll add, you know, on a hopefully uplifting note is that 
whatever stance I take now, and I, I guess I generally avoid a stance, but the shaping influence of Christ on my belief system, you know, over the years, um, I definitely, you know, I did not throw that out because as much of it as was sincere has survived the refinery and is, is still intact. So at this point, you know, it's just a matter of do I, or how do I relate to that title, that label of Christ? Um, but still, you know, without a doubt, the, the parts that I found resonating uh, and, and inherently truthful, you know, uh, I'm not going to just let that go because of some, some bad experiences or, or doubts. You know, I think at least fighting for whatever objective truth exists in the universe is a, is a worthy cause at, at whatever cost in life. So yeah. um, I, I admire your, your fellow pursuit of truth. Yeah. So any other thing that's on your mind that you want to discuss? Any ideas, any thoughts, any concerns, yeah, I mean, questions? The, the book is, uh, is really the, the thing that's been consuming all of my time and energy over the past year. And so um, those themes, which really is what we talked about today, that's, that's top of mind. And, um, you know, if anybody wants to read it, of course, it is called Swept Up, Lessons from the End Times. And, you know, from a, from a Christian perspective, I'm sure there's elements of it that would be considered impure. But to those who care to venture into the world and, uh, you know, glean, glean my perspective, Mm-hmm. I'd invite you to take a look at it. Okay. Now, I guess last statement, I guess, or reserved for you is what do you want the audience to see you as? So if if there's no label, where do you want, what is their takeaway that they should have to maybe inspire to follow suit the same sort of, you know, stance that you have? Well, again, we don't want to use the word stance here because you I get what you're saying though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I guess the only, it's kind of a cliche term, but like, you know, spiritual seeker, whatever you may call spiritual, I think reverence toward the unknown is critical, whether you call yourself a Christian or not. So realizing that there's certain things that you completely are not meant to wrap your mind around, not just, not just a, we don't quite know everything it's like there's a an entire dimension of reality or alternate reality or whatever it may be i think that is beyond our speculation um well it, of course we can speculate on whatever we want but if we're going to talk about the supernatural from the perspective of the natural we've got to work only with what we've been given and if if it is, as you said, meant to be somehow revealed, then it's revealed in that. And, uh, you know, don't dismiss any, any event or any, anything in life as potentially a source of deeper understanding. You know, it's, I think Carl, uh, not Carl Sagan, the other Carl Jung said, um, man, modern man doesn't see God because he doesn't look low enough. And that sort of does align with with Jesus, I think, even though I'm, they probably meant it in different ways. You know, it it takes humility to see something divine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and that's something that a lot of poets and philosophers across history agreed on is, 
you have to humble yourself to see God. And in that, you know, that they may very well have been touching on a Christian concept. Yeah, so, kind of. I think what I was when the last time we spoke, I had pointed you to Second Corinthians chapter two or three, that kind of speaks to the the reservation to experience God's fullness comes at the cost to those who love Him. So I suppose if there's a resistance or a tendency not to be fully in, it could prevently prevent you from experience God's fullness. I guess that's and and I don't know. I guess if we turn that into a human argument, argument, I guess to experience real love from a wife or a husband, it requires total commitment in regards to that. In order to not a lustful uh, version of love, but a committal reflection of love that eventually leads to marriage. And even the word marriage is very, you know, committal and in relation to God and or Christ and his marriage to the church. It's like, no matter where we turn, it's, it's, there's some sort of connection there. So, so I, I think, I, I think as a point, I necessarily actually this too. So besides some of the questioning or the concerns or list with the Christian faith, what else are you embracing that you find pretty evident? And maybe it's something that I would look into or I would explore in regards to just being more informal. Like from a philosophical, spiritual perspective? Yeah. Yeah, well, so I, I mean, knew we talked Christianity, but if if you've come to believe potentially that Christ might have not been the Son of God, or even though the idea of Trinity, at least to how I've described it, is a paradox, what other source of information have you come across that even though, because I think for every time something doesn't settle into your belief, it will have to be something else that's presented that will begin to allow you to lead towards, right? So I feel like for every thing that you read or you research or you learn can gravitate you to that. But for every other piece of information that is counterative or provides a, a counter argument towards the thing that you're being, you're withdrawing from and then being brought back to the center to still allow you to choose, what are the source of information or individual that you've read or belief system that you dabbled in that has you questioning some things, you don't mind me asking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there definitely have been some big influences, but I, I will say, I guess the big, the bigger development in my life is that is reaching a point where I didn't have to say, this is what re has replaced that. It's more that there's a certain vacancy to which a lot of different things have been able to, you know, pour in and meld. Um, that includes a lot of what I would consider voices of reason who aren't necessarily religious um, and many of them atheist actually, but who are just very, very strong pillars of logic. Uh, I almost don't want to name names in that field because some of them have views that I definitely don't agree with and I don't want it to seem as if I totally agree with them. But uh, well, let me ask really... you this. Do you believe, do you believe reasoning is a form of God? Well, I think that that is what would point to absolute truth. So I, I think, I do think that whatever drives us towards certain things being more true than others is us being pulled toward an absolute truth, but that that can't actually be packaged into any of the ways that we structure truth. So long answer. Yeah. Um, that is something that's coming from 
the other side that, that we that we're pulled toward that we have a a radar of certain things being closer to it um but yeah it's if there's an absolute reality then i guess that's synonymous with god mm-hmm. but would you so where do you think reasoning comes from that that light so to speak as an analogy well, what is the that, light <laughs> i'm just curious some what something yeah i know that i mean that that is the huge question so i'm not going to give you a perfect answer because my point actually is that we can't box up objective truth into language but obviously because of what you're saying like reasoning obviously makes us feel more attracted to certain ideas than others and i mean a lot of that is wired into our it's entirely wired into our being even though we all have different motives and agendas it always seems to correspond with survival, right? Physics, we, we interact with physics and nature in a certain way that mm-hmm. there's truth from the perspective of what helps us as a species reach our goals, which you could say on a broader level is some motive that the universe or God has that we fit into. So, mm-hmm. however... So you, have you embraced karma? Definitely not karma in the sense of everybody gets what's coming to them, but okay. karma in like the true Buddhist sense, maybe. Uh, well, so you got some Buddhist stuff going on there. I mean, is that is that the the origin? Is it Taoist? I don't know. what Karma, I know karma is misapplied in modern culture because I don't believe that, I think people are generally already living out some of the consequences of their uh mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's like Buddhist behavior. Hinduism. It's like Buddhist Hinduism vibe. Yeah, yeah. This strive for, but a lot of it it stems for this stride for self elevate elevation, right? Some of it is the belief that it's rooted within self to achieve. Yeah, the, the magnitude. I'm, I'm definitely uh, influenced by Alan Watts. He's someone who probably he did discuss that in, in some detail. Um, mm-hmm. He kind of comes from the Zen side of things, but also from an Anglican background. So he's familiar with the uh, the church and, as he calls it, the clergy on some level. He's no longer living, but his recordings are all out there. So mm-hmm. uh, that's one of my influences. But yeah, mm-hmm. I guess what you're getting at is do I subscribe to the idea that there's like a something tethering all elements in the universe together, you know, that, there, that there, there's some kind of oneness and... Yes, but not, I, I think what ma- what sometimes makes that sort of a, like a hippie belief is thinking that we can just like jump into the wave and ride it and like mm-hmm. somehow that that uh, corresponds with a, with a fitting set of actions, at which point you're turning it into a religion. Mm-hmm. So, so have you, have you ever heard of theosophy? No. So theosophy is something that along the lines is sort of taking reasonable things from every belief system that exists and is strung into a reasoned idea that all of it is semi the same. And therefore it's sort of wrapped into something called the cultish point of view where Mm -hmm. it's not choosing a side. And I, I encourage you to, you know, if you're, if you're interested to sort of dive into, cause that's some of the stuff that I've studied individually. And that's the reason why when I talk about like philosophy of religion and me dabbling and trying to see the huge difference is, again, I believe all the, these other belief systems are strung on ideas 
in regards to self, a little bit more of a, a selfish point of view versus a selfless point of view. And at least the idea of Christ has a big distinction because every other belief system points to the person being good and Christ points to us not being good. So again, at least when I stand far away and I look at everything, the one thing about Christianity that stands out is the accountability aspect and then the blatant almost sort of disrespecting thing that I think a lot of people have a problem with is to point out how uh, you're a sinner and that nothing about you, at least inwardly, is good without the assistance of Christ or help from Christ. And I think a lot of people, that turns them off because I guess within their own reality and reasoning, they think that there is a form of them that's good. And it's a very challenging discovery about yourself that someone is telling you that you fall short in these areas and it it kind of needs it kind of makes you feel devalued and in other cases not worthy of who you think you ought to be or what you can aspire to be so like i understand all those elements that come in when you're you're trying to lean towards things that are much more attractive and that's why i say the accountability comes into play because when you're presented with ideas like that whether it's truth or not truth depending on who it is that you're having a conversation with there are some people that are are tend to draw themselves the things that are much more captivating for themselves of other people they they draw themselves to more things that challenge them in those ways and i think sort of you have to find your niche like are you more interested in, I guess, than what makes you feel good and feel worthy that allows you to live life with a purposeful, a purposeful life? Or are you more lean towards coming to the realization that I, you know, I might not be perfect and therefore someone might complete this? So a lot of those ideas are some things that I, I kind of dabbled in and I kind of saw or I see normally when people are trying to embrace the unknown or trying to embrace at least Christ. Yeah, you, know, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. I uh I mean to be totally vulnerable with you, I I don't come from a place of feeling good or worthy to begin with. That was mm. in me from a very early age. So went in with no expectation of um feeling good about any anything that I might discover in in whatever pursuit of wisdom and you know truth. Um I would love to have more time to unpack the sort of humbling yourself to accept sin, whatever that means. Uh, I do have to bounce momentarily to another show, but um, I I remember struggling with that, not so much myself, but in trying to convey that to other people when I was, you know, trying to, you know, package up Christian theology um, and and realizing, oh, people are actually like offended by the suggestion that we all have sin. Like to me, that was so automatic. Yeah, we, of course we all have sin. Um, and some people, people feel like you're calling them a bad person mm-hmm. comparatively. Like, yeah, among society, you're a real screw up, you know? So wait, like, no, question, I'm not saying I know that. You, I know you got to go, but out of, just out of the quick question. Yeah. If, if Christ doesn't address it, how is it getting addressed? By reason? Christ doesn't address it? So in other words, if Christ, if we know, obviously, based upon, theology christ addresses it 
So I don't know if you actually believe that you, you are a sinful person or not, right? Let's say hypothetically you believe you are, then how does one address that issue? Like how do, how do they seek purification? How does purification happen if Christ is not the equalizer, at least from the reasonable side, right? Because you you stand more to the reasonable element of it. But if you're not in totally in in agreement with Christ addressing a potential thing, then if Christ is not, and that's not your lean, then who addresses it or how does it get addressed? And if it's not sin, then what is it? Okay. Well, yeah. um, I think the the cosmic bargaining agreement whereby Christ's death satisfies a payment for sin doesn't really make sense to anyone because it's like, who, who was he paying off? Why did God create the system in the first place where he's, where he has to shed blood? I think that can only be symbolic because it corresponds with the Judeo, well, the, the Jewish tradition um, at that point. But nonetheless, view it, even just viewing it through that angle. So if sin is the fact that, you know, by nature in the universe, we're fighting against elements that veer from order to disorder. That is the natural battle that we're engaged in. Imperfection, we have to accept that. Um, I guess Christ saying, you can't actually achieve perfection, and that's okay. I've acknowledged that. You thought that you had to keep these impossible laws. Check it out. You don't. Yeah, that makes sense. Why that actually satisfies something in the order of the universe, I, I, I can't really give it, you know, I can't defend that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, to me, that's, that's a resonant story without the God offering up his child. I think that has to be taken symbolically through a cultural lens, at which mm-hmm. point I, I, I get it. Mm-hmm. I guess so like, not, I'm, yeah, to close, I, I, I guess the only, the response I would say is the reason why is done in that particular way because it's an expression of love, of love towards you. In other words, it says that before we actually attempted to love, God loved us through that example of the sacrifice. And then the element of sin that's prohibiting you from being in the presence of God has to do with the cleansingness that's attached to Christ. And then going back to Genesis with the sacrifice in order to once sin entered and then using the animal for the sacrifice, it shifted from the animal sacrifice not being enough to cover over the sin of a human being, the distinction between the two. So that's very deep. And and the only forgiveness of sin has to be shed by blood, which is why the animals were being sacrificed continuously until Christ became the sacrificial lamb to it. So it's through the whole, well, we, we actually come right back to the center point of Good Friday is that sacrifice was made on the behalf that allows you to then walk in uh, sort of obedience or assistance with God through Christ. So in other words, we were distant from him because of sin in order for sin to be make amends and for us to gain access back to God, it comes through Christ, the pathway, first or second Adam. All right, I know you got to go. Thank you so much. Maybe we'll have hey, a part you, two Jonathan. coming on and I'll just pray us out real quick. Heavenly Father, Lord, in the name of Jesus, Thank you so much for this conversation. I hope that maybe certain answers, certain questions were answered or the aspire or the direction to drift more to you becomes eminent. If not, Lord, I pray that those who are listening are blessed. I pray those who are listening come to realize that 
when it comes to this God of ours, which is you, you're much more, you can be much more understood in much more deeper and profound ways. And Lord, I just pray for Matthew. I pray that as he continues on his search, whether it's you or whether it's something else, that you reveal yourself to him, right? There's a difference between trying to prove you and trying to gain some sort of experience through you. So I pray, Lord, that you have him exactly where he needs to be and that if there's any other work that needs to be done, I believe that you're well and capable of doing so. And I leave that relationship and connection between you and him. And I pray that you know what's best, whatever that may be, Lord. Lord, I say these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan.